Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Yeah, you know, so in writing my book and getting feedback on it, one of the things that I was kind of surprised by that I hear a lot is people feel really relieved in reading it that, you know, they have this idea. A lot of people just kind of in, um, have this assumption or this intuition that their eating behavior is all under their conscious control. And so when they do something that is not consistent with their goals, then that's like a personal failure. Like, why did I choose to do this bad thing? I am bad. And I think just that idea that we have all of these non-conscious brain systems that are not under our conscious control and that we're just kind of you know, like a tree swaying in the wind a lot of the time. Um, I think that concept is really helpful for a lot of people just in terms of framing and in terms of letting go of some of the guilt that they may have around some of their eating behaviors. You are listening to Veggie Doctor Radio, and this is episode number 270. Welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio. I am your host, Dr. Yami board-certified pediatrician, certified lifestyle medicine physician, certified health and wellness coach, author, speaker, mother, wife, and human being. I passionately believe in the power of diet, habits, and mindset in sparking and sustaining well-being and joy in our lives. This podcast combines expert interviews and thoughtful monologues to explore plant-based nutrition, lifestyle medicine, parenting, mindset, and other exciting and fun topics. I hope that these episodes inspire you, uplift you, and equip you with the knowledge and tools to live your best life. Are you ready to get started? Let's do it. Hey, hey, veggie lovers. Welcome back to Veggie Doctor Radio. Today I have for you Dr. Stefan Guillenay. I do want to give a trigger warning. In this podcast episode, we are discussing body weight, weight loss, body composition changes, all of those kinds of topics. So if that's triggering for you, if you do not want to hear this information or feel like you're not in a safe space in your brain to hear this type of information, this episode is not for you. I also want to remind you that the information on this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. It is not meant to replace careful evaluation and treatment. So if you have concerns about you or your child's, anybody in your family's eating, nutrition, or growth, please consult a health professional. Dr. Stefan Guillenay is a former researcher in the fields of neuroscience and obesity. He is the author of The Hungry Brain, a general audience book about the neuroscience of overeating and obesity that was called essential by the New York Times Book Review. He is the founder and director of Red Pen Reviews, which publishes the most informative, consistent, and unbiased reviews of popular nutrition books available. I have read 
his book a couple of times. And then I found out that he was doing the red pen reviews. And I really wanted to have him on the podcast, especially coming off of the fasting series to just talk about some general concepts when it comes to our food intake, and then also talk about his newest project, which I think is super exciting. So we talk about his background, how he became interested in the science of eating behavior. We talk about the definition of overeating. I don't think it's that cut and dry or straightforward. There are several different definitions of overeating. We talk about why humans overeat even when they don't really want to, what the role of the brain is in overeating, things that people misunderstand or oversimplify when it comes to overeating and our body size. Our current environment here in the United States, our current food environment and how it affects us. And I ask him, is there hope? Is there hope for us in the future as we become even more saturated with hyperpalatable, high calorie density foods all around us? We also talk about whether he thinks that mindfulness practices or intuitive eating make a big difference when it comes to our intake. And then we talk about the red pen reviews, what it is, who it's for, what the future of it is. So this is a really great episode. Obviously, he is a scientist and researcher. So it's just uh, very informative. We try to stick to more general concepts and not get too much into the basic sciences of it. But if you're interested to learn more about that, definitely read his book. And also he has a blog where it's very in depth on some of these topics, long articles, if you want to explore more of those. Veggie lovers, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for my veteran listeners coming week after week. I appreciate you. And to my new listeners, welcome. I so appreciate you being here and I hope that you stick around and I hope that all of you share episodes that you think may be helpful to other people. Let us welcome Dr. Stefan Guillenet. Dr. Stefan Guillenet, welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio. It's such a pleasure to have you today. Thanks for having me on, Dr. Yami. Well, this is super exciting. I read your book several years ago and read it again. And it's just such great information. And I was really pleased to know about your newest project and what you're doing. But before we get to that, I want to know more about your background. How and why did you become interested in the science of eating behavior? Yeah. So I've always been interested in fitness and nutrition, probably, you know, for the same reasons that many of the people listening today are just want to, uh, you know, reduce my risk of diseases, reduce my risk of gaining weight, want to increase my performance and well-being. So I've always been interested in that kind of thing. And I've always been interested in neuroscience as well, because the brain is really one of the last great remaining scientific frontiers. Um, you know, we still have a lot that we could learn about the liver, but we understand it a lot more than we understand the brain. I mean, the brain really, probably there's more that we don't know than that we do know about the brain. And it's also the organ that more than any other makes us who we are as individuals and as a species. So it's, it's a really interesting, complex challenge. So I've always been drawn to neuroscience, always been drawn to fitness, health, well-being. And um, I, I did my graduate work at the University of Washington on uh, neurodegenerative disease, which is also an interest of mine. But during um, the course of that work, I kind of, um, I was working on a disease that's, that's rare called SCA7. And I kind of um, 
lost enthusiasm just because it is not a very impactful disease. And so I wanted to move into something that was more impactful. And I had the opportunity to, um, for my postdoc, join Mike Schwartz's lab, who studies the neuroscience of obesity. And that to me was a great opportunity because it brought together my interests in health and fitness, as well as my interests in neuroscience and my desire to work on something more impactful. Obviously, obesity is a very impactful condition and, you know, more and more so. And so that, um, that was a great move for me. And then once I started learning about it, I came to see that there was all this incredible information in the scientific community about obesity, connection between obesity and the brain, and it wasn't getting to the public. So basically in the public sphere, you had all these theories about what caused obesity that were totally disconnected from the scientific evidence. And that became kind of a big source of frustration for me over time. And uh, so I started communicating about it on my blog and um, doing interviews and things. And eventually uh, it made sense to write a book just to kind of put everything together. And, you know, you, it's writing about something, especially writing about something in a more comprehensive way is a great way to increase your own understanding. And as part of writing the book, I spoke with many experts in the on the specific topics I was writing about. So it was really, you know, partly an education for me. And um, yeah, so that's it. That's really the arc of my interest in this area. So when you first got into this field, it sounds like you were surprised about what evidence was there that people didn't know that maybe you didn't know. But since being in that field, have there been things that have really challenged your beliefs about body size, about our behaviors when it comes to eating? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've I've had important beliefs of mine challenged many times and <laughs> it's it's always difficult, but you have to view it as a as a growth opportunity. And, you know, I want to be really clear about my book. Like it's I make many factual assertions in that book and you know it's based on the best interpretation of the best evidence that that I'm aware of but you know the evidence evolves and my own ability to interpret evidence evolves as well so i think even today even if i was looking at the exact same evidence i could probably do a better job of interpreting it and just because of my own growth over the years and then the evidence has evolved as well so do you want me to give you some examples about how things have changed relative sure, to the book? Sure, let's go for it. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay, so in the book, I kind of start with the premise that uh, body fat is determined by energy balance, so the number of calories we're eating minus the number we're burning, and that's still true, but the I really on the on the energy expenditure side, the calories burned side, I really emphasized exercise as a way to increase calories burned. And now we have this new idea that has come, has really, I would say, it may not, it may have originated before my book, but it really kind of came to prominence after my book, um, which is this idea that exercise in the long run doesn't actually increase our calorie expenditure as much as we initially thought. And so basically what what was the case was everybody was assuming that 
if you burn 2000 calories a day and then you add 500 calories of exercise on top of that every day, then you're going to be burning 2,500 calories a day forever. And that doesn't appear to be how it works. It's You'll end up burning more like 2,200 calories a day because your your body cuts back on calorie expenditure from other things. So you're still burning those calories in exercise, but over time your body kind of ramps things down in other areas, which by the way, may be a good thing. So I'm not saying that's bad, but it certainly limits um, the relevance of exercise to energy balance. And we see in trials, weight loss trials, diet tends to be more effective. If we do diet alone interventions, they seem to be more effective than exercise alone interventions for reducing weight, even if the calorie deficit target is the same in both situations. So I think, you know, that's one significant update is that that kind of points and I've always believed this, but it kind of reinforces the belief that diet is really the most powerful lever for managing your body fat level. And exercise can be helpful, so I don't, I'm not saying it's not helpful at all, but I think especially for the weight loss um, specifically, it's probably a, a lot less helpful than, than diet alone. And I think that challenges the beliefs of a lot of people because that's what we've been told for such a long time. I mean, I am a child of the 80s and I remember just the exercise, exercise, you know, all these different devices, all these different things. And so I think we've believed for a long time, you just need to move more. You just need to exercise more. And then when they're making these comparisons and even looking at the Hadza people and, um, you know, reading that book Burn by Dr. Herman Ponser. And then seeing that not only that, but that humans are so amazing that we become more metabolically efficient <laughs> over time, especially women. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so frustrating. You know, like we're the ones carrying the babies and breastfeeding and becoming more metabolically efficient <laughs> when we walk long distances. <laughs> so basically we're superhuman, but, but it doesn't help whenever you're looking to change body composition uh, and you're thinking of it in absolute terms because it just doesn't work like that for the human body. Yeah. And just to just to add a little point that I think is really important to make sure people understand is it like nothing has changed about the impact of exercise on health and the impact of exercise on, you know, physical function and well-being. So exercise, in my view, and I, I think this is the general consensus that it's extremely important for health and well-being and physical function and healthy aging. So I'm I'm talking specifically about its relevance to loss of body fat here. Yeah, I know absolutely. And if you're looking at it just in absolute terms like calories burned, that kind of thing it may not be helpful, but it can whenever you do incorporate exercise and physical activity into your life, it can help manage those overeating instances or cravings even, you know? So there's a lot of benefits to exercise for your eating, but we shouldn't be seeing exercise as the way to quote, lose body fat, basically. Yeah, I agree with that. I, you know, I want to add one more caveat. Sorry that I'm keeping us on yeah, this topic, no, but go. I think you're it's- the, you're, the, you're the researcher, so go all out. <laughs> yeah. So um, I do think exercise is probably more helpful for preventing fat gain than it is for causing weight loss. And you see this in the, um, in the rodent studies. Um, I actually think 
rodents are a surprisingly good model for, for human obesity. They respond in the same way as humans to a lot of dietary and drug variables. And what you see in rodents is if you give them a fattening diet and you give them a way to exercise, first of all, they will exercise quite a bit. And second of all, they don't gain as much fat. And so either, you know, there's the, there's the fat that occurs rapidly on a fattening diet and it doesn't prevent it, but it reduces it. And then there is the kind of like very gradual fat gain that occurs as a result of aging, even on a relatively healthy diet on it, within rodents. And it will basically completely prevent that type of gradual aging-related fat gain. And so... Um, and, and there's evidence for this in humans, and it seems like more than anything, it comes back to what you were alluding to is it helps regulate our intake. So it might increase your energy expenditure to some degree, but more than anything, it helps support you in appropriate eating behaviors. And, um, and again, the, the evidence is not like home run for this in humans. It's mostly observational at this point, but it is consistent with the rodent literature, which makes me more confident about it. So I tend to think that it is pretty helpful for preventing fat gain. But once you've gained that fat, it's not going to be the, the strongest lever for taking it off. Uh, thank you so much for, for bringing that difference up. I think that's really important. And especially for parents of young children. That's really important to hear, too, because we talk about lifestyle medicine. We talk about these habits and behaviors that we want to integrate into the lifestyle so that children can learn these and grow up with them. And physical activity is an important lifestyle habit that we can model for our children and do with our family so that they you know, develop and grow into a life of regular physical activity. It's something that they crave, something that they love, and that's going to help them in so many different ways. Well, I want to take a step back and ask what may seem like a dumb question, but I was thinking about this the other day, and I think it's a very important question, and that is, what is overeating? Because, I mean, we can define it in lots of different ways, not just in quantity of food, like sheer volume, calorie content of food, but also time frame. Is it is it truly just in 24 hours, like we always think of things in 24 hours, right? But I mean, time is an artificial construct. So like really, what is the simplest way to understand what true overeating is? Yeah, so I think it could be defined in different ways that could all be valid. So I don't think there is like one definition that's right and the, all the other ones are wrong. But the way that I think about it is overeating is eating more calories than a person needs in 24 hours to maintain a lean body. And so um and and you so you could overeat for one day and that probably isn't going to matter very much. But if you do it consistently then it is going to matter. Do it one day, not a big deal, you know, it often people will go over, then they'll go under, then they'll go over, then they'll go under and it fluctuates from day to day and Really, the long the long run is really what matters for your body fatness. But I think that's a good working definition is eating more calories than you need to maintain a lean body over a 24-hour period. And consistently. Just because also as a pediatrician, I teach parents all the time that, especially toddlers, 
one day they're going to eat more than you. One day they're going to barely eat. Like they're very in tune with their bodies. They they listen to their cues as long as we're able to support them, support those cues over time. But if we judge it from that perspective, sometimes it can be misleading, right? Because some days we're like, oh my gosh, you're going to starve to death. You're barely eating. And the next day you're like, how can you be eating so much? Why are you asking for thirds? <laughs> you know? So, so that's, you know, it could be confusing sometimes. At this point in our evolution of humanity in the United States, do the majority of humans overeat? Oh, man. Uh, probably not. If you look, if you're asking the question globally, probably not. Um, I don't think the majority of humans at this point, and I could be wrong about this. I don't think the majority of humans right now are overweight or obese. Um, so I would say that suggests probably most people globally or not but you know you have to keep in mind that a lot of places are you know a lot of places in the world still are very low income not very industrialized still um dealing with really high levels of food insecurity and have really high um physical activity requirements in daily life so a lot of a lot of the places where obesity is um lower than for example the united states are places where you know the life is radically different than it is in the united states if we look at the united states specifically yeah i mean i think it's pretty clear that most people do overeat um right now uh less than a third of people i think is the the most recent statistics less than a third of adults um are considered lean, are in the lean category, as opposed to overweight and obese by body mass index. And some of those people are not actually lean. So I'm glad you said that because I was going to say the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I mean, conversely, also, some people in the overweight category are not actually overweight. So there's that as well. But, you know, some of the people in the lean category are we might call skinny fat or sarcopenic where they have low lean mass and actually pretty high body fat percentage and so you know the the, the body mass index it's it's a it's a very rough measure of of body fatness so but it's it's useful to to get a general picture of things and the general picture is that most people have excess body fat in the United States and I think that provides pretty good evidence that most people are consistently overeating. Yeah. And I don't know if you know the answer to this question, but for all of the people that are overconsuming calories consistently, like do most people realize that they're overeating? Because to me, it seems like since we eat such a processed diet and the volume for the calorie density, I mean, it's a lower volume, higher calorie density. Are there just a lot of people that don't realize that they're overeating? Like it seems like a reasonable amount of food for them. Yeah. So that's a good question. And I can only speculate about this because I don't actually have any data on it um, to refer to. I mean, this would be a great question to address using a survey um, you know, representative survey, ask, just literally ask people, do you think you overeat? And I, I'm not quite sure what the results are, what the results would be. Um, but I, 
think I will say that I don't think overeating I think I think that in many cases it's not intuitive that a person is overeating. And the reason is that most people, there are exceptions to this, but most people the way that we eat food is we sit down to a meal and or or snack and we you know, have a certain level of eating drive via hunger and cravings and all the other things that make us want to eat. And we eat and we eat and we eat until that desire goes away, until we feel full, we feel satisfied, and then we stop eating. So there's not like there's not like a spreadsheet in our heads with the calorie count that ticks up and up and up and then we stop when we hit, you know, exactly a certain number of calories. It's a very intuitive process and most people, they're not stopping when they're like about to explode. They're just stopping when they feel satisfied. And so it's it's not necessarily intuitive that you just overate. And, you know, just to add on to that a little bit, like why would it not be intuitive is it comes back to what you said is that the foods that we tend to consume are foods that produce less satiety and less satiation related concept at a meal. And so you have to eat more calories of those foods just to reach that same level of satisfaction that you could reach with fewer calories of a different kind of food. So if you're eating pizza or hot dog or, uh, you know, French fries, calorie dense, highly palatable processed foods, it takes more calories of that food, not necessarily more volume, probably even less volume, but more calories of that food to reach the point of satisfaction where you're not stuffed. You're just ready to be done eating. You're not going to feel deprived if you stop. So, you know, and furthermore, the difference in calorie intake between a person who is lean and a person who is overweight is only about 10%. And the difference between, between a lean person and a person who has obesity is only like 20 to 35%. And so we're not talking about, you know, someone who is lean, like you probably couldn't even tell the difference by looking at their plate and how much they're eating. Or it might just be a little couple small snacks during during the day or an extra beer. The um, person who's who has obesity, you might notice that they take an extra helping. Maybe they would notice it, but it's not like, an insane amount of extra food. They're not like eating double the amount that a lean person is eating unless they really have truly extreme obesity that, you know, that's unusual. So I don't think, you know, even in just the the physical quantity that you're taking, I don't think it's that obvious either. So, and it, you know, it might be more that it's the same amount of food on their plate, but they're going for more calorie dense items. So I don't think it's really that intuitive or obvious that, you're eating 10% more calories or 20% more calories than a lean person. So I think probably, you know, there are some cases like people might have binge eating disorder or some other uh, condition where like they're, it's really clear that they are overeating, at least under certain circumstances. Um, but I think, for people who are not in that category, 
I think the way that they might conclude that they're overeating is just looking at their own, the amount of fat on their body. But I don't think on a meal-to-meal basis that it's probably going to be obvious at all to most people. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you just thinking through that a little bit, but it is fascinating because I think a lot of us think, especially because there's a lot of people that put blame on people that have larger bodies and say, it's personal responsibility. It's all your fault. You just need to eat less, move more. And I think in their heads, they're also blowing out of proportion thinking, oh, you're just eating the 10,000 calories a day, you know, and what you're saying is no, it's actually a smaller difference. But probably what's also important about that is that it's a consistent small difference over time. But I did have one thought because we always are looking at ways to, you know, eat less, lose weight, uh, you know, those kinds of things. But what's really fascinating and interesting is looking at studies where they purposely try to make people gain weight. And I just know from my experience, because I have a history of disordered eating and definitely binge eating disorder. And I'll tell you that my weight stays very stable. And that to me only recently has become very fascinating that my body, even if I go through periods where I'm super stressed and I'm overeating a lot and binge eating, it'll eventually be like, okay, we're done. And it just like slides me right back down. And the same thing happens if I purposely try to lose body fat, I might get to a certain point where it feels pretty easy. And after that, my body's like, yeah, we're done. We're going to slide right back up. And I stay like literally within a 10 pound weight, like my entire life since I've been in high school. And only recently have I thought, wow, that's actually really (laughs) fascinating because I've always focused on losing weight my whole life, but I've never realized that my body's also keeping me from gaining a huge amount of weight too and staying there. It'll come right back down naturally. So I think that's another fascinating thing to think about is all of these mechanisms that help regulate body weight. But maybe you could just talk about some of the basics of why do we overeat even if we really don't want to? I think most people, if you ask them, do you want to overeat? They're probably gonna say, yeah, no, I don't really want to overeat. We talked about ultra-processed foods, but what are some other reasons? And now for a very important message. Hey mama, if you are feeling frustrated about mealtime battles, worried that your child isn't eating enough or eating enough vegetables, afraid that your child is going to get some awful deficiency or disease because of the lack of diversity in their diet, I wrote a book that might be for you. A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy is available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook through all major online booksellers. Did you know that most children are born with the innate ability to eat the appropriate amount of food to satisfy their hunger and support appropriate growth? Despite this, parents are still anxious and confused about how much and what to feed their children. In addition, many children are labeled as picky eaters or develop behaviors such as hiding and sneaking food. There's also a growing epidemic of dieting behaviors and eating disorders beginning at alarmingly young ages. In my book, you'll learn the five pillars of healthy eating, how to apply intuitive eating through all the stages of development, lifestyle habits that support healthy eating and body image, troubleshooting and problem solving for picky eaters, overeating and dieting behaviors, how to create and foster a healthy body image in your children, 
how exploring your own body image and relationship with food will help raise an intuitive eater and what foods to offer your child at different stages of development. A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy, available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook through all major online booksellers. Are you ready for a fresh approach to feeding your child? For more information, visit dryami.com forward slash book. And now back to the episode. Yeah, so I want to start just by briefly addressing what you said. Um, I think it, uh, you know, this is one of the things that got me really fascinated in uh, the neuroscience of obesity because we have, it's pretty obvious from a lot of different pieces of evidence that are very consistent with what you just described about your own weight, that body weight in humans is regulated. It's not just this passively determined properly, property, it's physiologically regulated, just like temperature, body temperature, blood pressure, and other things are physiologically regulated. And the regulatory system, the first evidence of it was published in 1840, and it's like we have tons of evidence on what it is and how it works now, and it's located in the brain. And so that, to me, is one of the strongest pieces of evidence pointing to the importance of the brain in, in body fatness. So to answer the question you asked, um, what, which is why do we overeat even if we don't want to? I think the first thing to do here is to take a little step back and, and like ask what are the implications of even asking that question? Because that's pretty, like, if you think about it, it's a pretty strange thing that, you know, we would do something that we don't want to do, right? I mean, that implies that there are different systems in our brains that are in conflict with one another. There's a system, there's a, there's a rational, conscious part of us that wants to be lean and wants to eat healthy foods, wants to, you know, live a long time and be healthy and, and is, you know, persuaded by logic. And then there's another part of us that doesn't want to do those things. It wants to eat really unhealthy food. It wants to eat as much of it as possible. And it's really, uh, really persuasive. It's really like forceful and it's hard to resist those uh, urges. And so I think that right there, just, just the implications of that question really almost answers itself is that we have these non-conscious brain regions that these non-conscious brain systems that evolved in a very different context than the one that we're living in today, we don't have direct control over these brain systems, but they are generating um, motivations, urges, like hunger, like cravings, things like that, that we're not in control of, but we have to experience those and manage them or struggle with them or give in to them or whatever. Um, and those brain systems in general are pushing us toward a higher calorie intake and higher intake of calorie dense, highly processed foods. And just because of the ancestral environment that we evolved in and the fact that those foods are the most concentrated in the nutrients that our brains care about because of natural selection. And so that's really the big picture is we have brains that have all these, you know, non-conscious 
systems that evolved in that ancestral context and push us to overconsume certain nutrients because that was actually beneficial to have those motivations in the ancestral envi environment. And one thing that's interesting to me to think about too is just volume. And I wonder what your thoughts are on volume of food, because in the plant-based community, you hear a lot of people that feel like they've had success with eating a plant-based diet because they naturally just want to eat a bigger quantity of food and they feel more comfortable and satisfied with a bigger quantity of food. Do you feel like that's something that's just inbred into humans? Because in the past, we were eating such a large amount of low calorie density, very fibrous, you know, roots and berries and whatever. Or is that more of a learned behavior or just individual genetic differences? I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So, I mean, in general, I think that, you know, I, th I think the, the problem people are trying to solve by eating lower calorie density, higher volume food is how can I eat the amount of calories that I want to eat? So like, how can I not overeat, but still feel satisfied? At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. And so those lower calorie density foods are going to have a higher satiety value per calorie. And so I think that's why people gravitate to that. But, you know, if they were just totally giving in to their, their instincts, they probably wouldn't eat those lower calorie density foods. They'd probably go for high calorie density, you know, highly processed refined foods. Those are just not the foods that are consistent with their goals. And so they're trying to find the best path that's most sustainable for them within their calorie targets. Um, so that makes a lot of sense there. Um, 
but it still involves some, you know, management and decisions and, and willpower to kind of keep you on that, that track. And, um, so the way I think about this is basically that your, your brain, so when it, when your brain is determining your satiety and your satisfaction level and your motivation to eat more, it's integrating a lot of different information. And one of the pieces of information it integrates is how hard is this food to digest, to process? And that includes the chewing process. It includes the, the digestive process. And if you have food that is, you know, it takes a longer time to chew, like let's say nuts or salad or some kind of vegetable food that has a lot of fiber, that has a lot of volume per calorie, you're, you're really creating a greater challenge for your digestive tract, including, including your, your mouth. And your brain is going to react. This is kind of my way of conceptualizing it. Your brain is going to react by kind of cutting you off earlier because, you know, your brain might want you to eat more calories than that, but it realizes that it can't, can't or doesn't want to do all the work to handle all the bulk and all the chewing to get those calories down. So it kind of um, cuts you off at an earlier point calorie-wise. Um, so that's kind of how I think about it, because anything that you do that challenges the digestive tract more, whether it's higher bulk, higher fiber, longer, harder to chew, um, compounds that might not taste good and interfere with digestive process, like bitter, things that might taste bitter, um, which often signal digestive inhibitors, um, those all those things are going to reduce intake. Their so-called phago inhibitory is how uh, the animal researchers would would conceptualize those. So those are things that inhibit eating. Phagostimulatory are properties that stimulate eating. That's super interesting. What have you seen as what most people are thinking maybe when they're misunderstanding or oversimplifying overeating or body size. I know we mentioned it earlier that a lot of people are kind of thinking, wow, I was going to, this person that has this large body size is eating a ton more calories. What are some other ways that we oversimplify this, this very complex topic of our, you know, eating intake, our food intake? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the biggest ones is assuming that it's, that our body fatness is all about our willpower and voluntary choices and not considering all these non-conscious influences that I wouldn't say they control our behavior, but they strongly suggest what our behavior should be. And if you don't take the suggestion, you're going to, you're going to have a struggle on your hands. And, um, so that, you know, that's really the main thesis of my book is that if we are just focusing on these conscious, uh, processes like how, you know, counting calories and counting energy expenditure and trying to, you know, do it kind of the spreadsheet way of uh, intake minus expenditure. Not to say that that can't be helpful, that can be helpful sometimes, but when you do that and just try to ignore these other influences on your eating behavior, you're, you're really ignoring the most powerful 
determinants of your eating behavior. And so, you know, just to give you an example, in the United States, each year, two thirds of people with obesity engage in some kind of weight loss effort, some kind of deliberate weight loss effort. And these people, you know, you look at the diets that are typical and they're trying every diet under the sun and they're not, you know, they're not going back to lean. And so you, you know, you see, I think that just kind of emphasizes the challenge of it. Like, I think a lot of people who are lean, they don't understand that most people with obesity are actually trying to not have obesity and not succeeding. So it's not a question of they just don't care or, you know, they're lazy. Like they're trying and they're not getting to where they want to get. So um, I think, again, that really emphasizes that it's not just about uh, making deliberate conscious decisions and having willpower, because if it was, I don't think there would be a lot of obesity in the United States. It would be a lot easier than it is to lose weight and to keep it off. So this primitive part of our brain that evolved in a time when food was scarce, when calories were scarce, it wants us to seek out foods that are high in energy density because that signifies survival. You know, that's going to help us get to that next stage of having a baby and passing on our, our DNA, which is ultimately what we want to do, even though maybe it's not consciously. But back then we didn't have like hamburger trees and pizza bushes and, you know, ice cream ponds. I, this world sounds amazing to me, by the way, that I'm creating in my, my fantasy right now. Um, so, but that's what kind of what we have now, right? I mean, like literally within a block, there are so many fast food restaurants. It's so easy to just drive through. Actually, you know what the easiest thing ever now is getting on your phone when you're on the couch and ordering your food. Like you only have to take like five steps. You don't have to get in the car anymore. <laughs> I mean, so talk a little bit about that and how that would have, that's really kind of hijacked these systems that were meant to help us survive, but now it's leading to another problem. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we have the ancestral context where food is a lot of work to get. You know, if you're a hunter-gatherer, your full-time job is getting food, basically. I mean, there's some other things you have to do as well, but most of your time you're spending trying to get food. And you know, it's it's a high work, high skill profession. And um, so you have, you know, if you're an animal living in that environment, you have to have strong motivational drives to motivate you to do all that work all the time. And you also have to have drives that point you to the most efficient sources of the nutrients that you need to survive and reproduce. And so over the course of you know hundreds of millions of years even long before humans existed we developed these brain systems that are hardwired to seek certain types of nutrients and most of those nutrients are the ones that supply calories and um and also learn over time with experience which foods are the best sources of those so we have this dopamine reinforcement system. And this is, again, hundreds of millions of years old. We share it with um, lampreys and hagfish, which are our most distant vertebrate ancestors. Basically, as soon as vertebrates evolved, there was already 
dopamine mediated reinforcement. And in fact, even like some insects have similar systems. So this is like truly ancient, very fundamental to how our brain works. And it's a system that lets us intuitively learn what things are good are good for us. And it's hardwired to respond to specific types of nutrients. And you would call this in psych psychology uh, terminology, these are unconditioned stimuli. These are things that we automatically hardwired um, respond to in a positive way. So that's carbohydrate, sugars and starch, fat, protein, glutamate, which is that meaty umami flavor that's in soy sauce or cooked meat or MSG, um, and salt. And these are things that almost everybody enjoys. Every culture enjoys these things. And then by virtue of being um, eating many different foods in the environment and getting signals from the gut, the brain learns which foods are most concentrated in these nutrients and they motivate you accordingly. And especially when these foods contain combinations of multiple nutrients, like carbs and fat is a big one, either with a sweet twist or a salty savory twist. Those are the foods that most tend to drive people wild and drive this reinforcement system wild. And so, um, and, and by the way, those are foods that are very rare in, in nature. So those are mostly things that exist in the modern context. And so we have these systems that evolve to drive us towards certain nutrients, mostly calorie containing nutrients, and that motivate us proportionally to the concentration of these nutrients in food up to a point there's kind of a bliss point. So you're not going to eat pure salt. You're not going to take shots of oil. But up to a point, they, the motivation increases, the seductiveness increases with increasing concentration of these, these substances. And so that's, that's kind of the context of how our brain, brains evolved. And again, you need to be highly motivated toward these substances if you're going to spend eight hours a day romping around the wilderness trying to acquire them, right? So that's that's how our brains are are set up. And now we move into the modern environment where now it's extremely easy to acquire these nutrients. So we don't, you know, most of us are not primary food producers anymore, or at least not for the majority of our food. Maybe we grow some tomatoes and, you know, cucumbers in the garden, but most of the calories that we're eating, almost all of us, are made by somebody else, and we're doing a different type of work. It's very easy for us to get large amounts of food that's very concentrated in these caloric nutrients that our brains seek. But we still have these strong motivations built into our brains that are telling us, you got it, get this stuff. You know, this, this donut here is an amazing opportunity to get these amazing nutrients like, this is going to help you survive. This is going to help you have a baby. Who knows if this is going to be here tomorrow? It probably won't. Probably never get to see this again. You better eat three or four of these. And and meanwhile, the next day, it's back again, and it's back again, and it's there every day. Um, so it's, you know, that's kind of, and again, this is non-conscious. This is just how our brains are calibrated. This is not a thought process that, we're actually engaging in or thinking about or aware of. It's just kind of how our brains are calibrated. And um, 
So yeah, that's it. And and then we we have these strong motivations that get even stronger because these foods that are combinations of desirable nutrients are like maxing out our dopamine response to foods more than you would with natural foods. And um and so we have like really easy access, really high motivational drives toward these foods. And so it's not really a surprise that we're over consuming them. That's that's my opinion. Hey, are you kind of curious about microgreens and including microgreens in your diet, but you're not sure where to start and you're not sure how to do it? I love my Hamama microgreen grower. It's so easy, it's so convenient. So this is how it works. Basically, they send you the kit and it has this little seed quilt, okay? And then you soak the seed quilt in the water and in a few days, you see your tiny little baby sprouts growing and a few days after that, you can start eating them and it's so fun. And you can tell them that you're eating them and they're really happy that you're eating them and your body's really happy that you're eating them. But here's the best part, because I've told y'all before, I'm lazy. So I don't wanna have to use any mental energy that I don't need to, and they send you seed quilts every month. So you don't run out, you can change what seed quilts you want to try. So here's some examples of some of the seed quilts they have. Hearty broccoli, refreshing cabbage, energizing kale, spicy daikon radish, super salad mix. You can even get wheatgrass, you can get culinary cilantro, or even hot wasabi mustard. So there's lots to choose from. They have different flavors. They're so cute and they're health promoting. So you can get a good dose of antioxidants and it's really beautiful. I also use them for garnish when I'm making soups and salads and different bowls. You can impress your guests. But like I said, it's going to be low energy cost on your part. And it's actually not that expensive either. The other thing that I use from Hamama is a green onion growing kit, which is really cool because it can decrease your food waste. So you buy the green onions and then the little part that has the root, the white part at the bottom, you stick it in these little holes and then you just put the water in there and it grows. And then you can keep eating the same green onions. You just go with your little scissors and you chop it off and you put it into your food. So if you wanna give it a try, you've been curious about microgreens and different ways that you can grow your own food, check out Hamama. You can find it in my show notes for a link to get 15% off, or you can go to dryami.com forward slash shop so that you can find the link and get 15% off your first order. Happy growing. Do you love Veggie Doctor Radio, but you're sick of listening to ads? Join the Plantscription. The Plantscription is a monthly membership where you have access to ad-free episodes of Veggie Doctor Radio every week. But that's not all. You also have access to a monthly live Q&A with me and a monthly live book club. You also get access to writings and musings and free giveaways. It is such a great deal. Right now, it's only $5 a month to join the Planscription. If you want to join, go to planscription.substack.com or go to the show notes to follow the link. Join the Planscription today and join me in this plantastic community. So given all of that and understanding how we're hardwired and our current environment that's only getting more saturated with ultra-processed foods, 
I mean, are we doomed? Is there any hope? <laughs> what is your perspective on our future as a species here? Oh, man. Yeah. So I think I really like to divide this up into um, societal, the question on a societal level and then the question on the individual level. And I'll start with the individual level because I think that's a more kind of hopeful picture. Um, I think on an individual level, there is a lot that you know, motivated, conscientious people can do to to manage their body fatness. And generally eating a lower calorie density, less refined diet, um, eating a diet that, you know, the flip side of that is avoiding calorie dense, ultra processed, highly palatable foods. Um, you know, you don't have to avoid all of them, but just kind of not making that the focus of your diet like most people do. And um, and limiting snacking, I think, is helpful too. I think a lot of people consume more calories than they realize between meals. And actually, if you look at the the data on the things that correlate with the U.S. obesity epidemic, so the steep rise in obesity that happened in the 80s, 90s, and is kind of still ongoing. Um, one of the biggest changes you see is an increase in in between meal eating occasions, and that includes sugar sweetened beverages, by the way. So it's not yep. necessarily all s solid foods, but people started consuming a lot more calories between meals, and the increase there is actually single handedly sufficient to explain the rise in obesity. So I think that's another thing to to think about. Um, but yeah, you know, I think there's the food itself that we tend to focus on, but I think the food environment is also really important. So not so this system that I was talking about, the dopamine reinforcement system, it responds to the way that system gets triggered and triggers your motivations and your cravings is cues in your environment. So you see the donuts, you smell the brownies in the oven, you walk by the, you know, pizza place where you've had pizza a bunch of times. You're, you know, in the you're with a certain friend group where you always have a drink. Uh, you know, that's kind of like the how that system works. It gets triggered by cues that predict the receipt of that reward. And so I think having a food environment that doesn't offer you those sensory cues throughout the day is a helpful way to eat less between meals. So, um, yeah. I don't remember what your question was. Did I answer it? <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. Well, and I, I think, were you going to say something about society at large? Oh, yeah. Like, thank you. What are some what are some of your thoughts there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so okay, yeah. So on the individual level, I think that there is a lot that people can do. And I, I do think that diet and lifestyle really are impactful of, of body fatness. So I have a fair amount of like hope about that, particularly for preventing the development of obesity in the first place. On a societal level, I am less hopeful and more skeptical. And the reason is if you look at the increase in calorie intake since before the obesity epidemic, we're eating like 250 plus more calories per day on average 
than we used to in the United States. So our calorie intake has gone up by like 10%. And that's a huge amount. And and that's not evenly distributed either. It's, you know, some people probably their calorie intake hasn't changed relative to what it would have been in the 70s. Whereas the people who now have obesity, their calorie intake probably is has gone up by a lot more than that. And so these are really large differences on a population level. And we're not going to reduce that back down to 1960s levels by the little half-hearted efforts that we're doing on a, on a country level today. Like, we're not really doing a whole lot to prevent that right now. And I don't believe it's going to make a dent. And I think that if we did want to make a dent, it is theoretically possible. You know, I think there are things we could do as a society, but I don't think that they're going to be palatable to the U.S. public. I don't think they're going to be palatable to politicians because they're going to involve some pretty heavy-handed regulation of what we eat and what our food environment is like. And I don't think people want that. So I'm I'm pretty skeptical on a societal level. Like, I don't think everybody is going to wake up tomorrow and start, you know, dedicating themselves to a healthy diet and lifestyle. I don't think that's realistic. I think most people's diets are simply a product of their environment and their upbringing. And unless we radically change those, it's not going to change. You know, I think only the people who are really engaged and motivated are going to be the ones who really change their diet and environment. And um, and that's always going to be a small subset of the population. So for me, most of my hope on a societal level is is going toward the technological solutions. So, for example, these new weight loss drugs that have been developed, semaglutide, terzepatide, there are many others in the drug development pipeline. And these drugs, they just, in the average person, they cause a lot more weight loss than any kind of diet. They seem safe. They seem effective. And so to me, if we're going to address this at a societal level, I think, I don't think like government regulation of our diet and lifestyle is ever going to get us there. I think we're going to need technological solutions. Yeah. And it's because those drugs are impacting our motivation to eat, right? So we're eating less because we have less desire for those foods, which a lot of us wish we could just have a switch like that. You know, like, how can I just want less donuts? <laughs> you yeah. Know? So, whew, that's a hard one. Absolutely. And I think it's worth stating that these drugs, they act in the brain. The ones that are really effective, they act in the brain on parts of the brain that are known to be involved in regulation of eating behavior and body fatness. So that's another piece of evidence that these systems are really important. Well, thank you for that. I appreciate your thoughts on that mm -hmm. because it is a difficult topic. Really quick, I'd love to hear your thoughts on mindfulness and intuitive eating in the context of learning not to overeat specifically hyperpalatable food. Do you think that that's a possible thing? Like, is it possible that integrating like our frontal lobe, this more conscious process can help influence that primitive brain when we are eating a Twinkie or is that not really compatible? I mean, my perspective is basically show me the evidence that it works. <laughs> um, I know that those types of diet approaches 
have not been, at least the last time I looked into it, have not been shown to be very effective for weight loss. So from that perspective, I'm not that enthusiastic about them. I think in theory, you know, the theory of it is is logical. I do think, you know, engaging so-called system two parts of the brain, our more conscious, logical, rational brain can help us make better eating choices. So, you know, I think there there is some sound theory behind it. I guess I just want to see the evidence that it's, you know, really effective in practice. And as far as weight loss, it doesn't appear to be very effective. If you're asking about specifically um, regulating consumption of specific foods, I haven't seen the evidence on that yet, so I can't I can't really say whether it's effective or not. I'd be kind of skeptical based on the weight loss evidence, but but again, I, I would need to look into it to have a stronger opinion. Yeah, it's a tough one because I have one foot immersed in the intuitive eating world as well, and I've seen for me some changes in that decreased motivation and drive for certain foods, but it is tough once you start eating some of those foods, it is like that other part of your brain takes over and you're like, oh, this is so good. I just want to keep eating it, you know? <laughs> so it is, you have to be like super conscious, like very, very in tune, which I think most people are not going to be willing or able to dedicate that amount of, you know, brain energy to it, you know? I will say so, this too. I'll add simply that, you know, if something works for you, then it works. Like, I'm not going to argue with that. Um, but mostly what the perspective I'm coming from is what do the studies say about what happens in the average person? That doesn't necessarily mean that it's not going to be effective for some people. But, um, you know, giving blanket advice to people who I don't know, usually I like to go on what the average response is going to be. Yeah. No, I love that because I totally agree. I don't think there's any absolutes when it comes to any of this stuff. I mean, there's people that have done stuff that have worked and you're like, wow, that's incredible that it worked. But for all these people, <laughs> that definitely does not work, <laughs> you know, but then there are people will argue, well, it worked for me, so it must work for everybody else. And that's just not the way it works. So, all right, well, this has been great. I need to segue away from this topic so that we can have a little bit of time <laughs> to talk about your really amazing project, the Red Pen Review. So why did you start this project? How's it going? And what do you envision for the future? Yeah. So the main reason I started Red Pen Reviews, so first of all, let me take a step back and tell people what Red Pen Reviews is. Um, Red Pen Reviews is a nonprofit and a website that publishes free expert reviews of popular nutrition books. And we have this rigorous method that we developed for reviewing these books that um, is very consistent, very rigorous, and um, allows you to get a consistent output and compare books on the same same metrics. And um, so the basic problem we're trying to solve is that the public does not have good signals of information quality of popular nutrition books. So if you um, go on, like, let's say there's a book that you're interested in, you want to know, is this book evidence-based? What do you do? Like, you could go on amazon.com and look at reviews. Those are basically useless. You know, most of those people don't, don't have expertise. Uh, 
you know, half of them probably haven't even read the whole book. They're not checking citations. They're not doing literature reviews. Like, it's just not really very informative. And also, you know, the people who are reviewing it is not an unbiased sample of the people who actually purchased and read the book. And then you can look at reviews, you know, maybe if you're lucky, there are reviews in major media, maybe New York Times, Atlantic, something like that. But usually those reviews are not done by experts either. Sometimes they are, usually not. Usually they're done by a journalist who doesn't have expertise in the area. Again, they're usually not checking references in the books. They're not doing scientific literature searches to see if the claims in the book are, are making sense with the broader evidence. And so what do you do if you're a consumer, you're, you're not an expert, and you want to know whether this book is evidence-based or not? You don't really have anywhere to go. And so, um, you know, in part because of this, you have this environment where um, books with really low evidence quality have proliferated because there's essentially no accountability. There's no one looking over the shoulder and saying, okay, this is this is." good argument, that's a bad argument, et cetera. Um, and so that's what we wanted to do is give, is, is give people a way to easily, quickly, and reliably determine the evidence quality of, of these books. And so we go through this review method, this structured review method that gives numerical scores for scientific accuracy, reference accuracy, and helpfulness. And I won't go through all the details, but it's a very structured method that um, really tries to, in a, in a very unbiased way, or as unbiased as we can be, I should say, um, score on those three metrics how, how evidence-based the books are. And um, so, and then we present at the top of the page, this is one of the things that I think is coolest about red pen reviews is at the top of the page, you get percentile scores for those three domains, and you get an overall score. And so there's these bars. It's almost like Rotten Tomatoes, where there's these bars at the top you can look at, and literally in seconds, you can see you know, the cover of the book, what's the book, what's the title of it next to it, how did it score, and within just a few seconds, you can have a really informative picture of the evidence quality of that book. So not only is it giving you a really reliable score, but it's giving you a really accessible um, and easy to absorb score, which is a really important goal that we had. And so, um, yeah, so that's that's what it is and, and why we developed it. How it's going is it's going well. Um, we've had a tremendous amount of enthusiasm and support from the community. People really appreciate having this resource. Um, we, you know, we operate on a shoestring budget. And like I said, we're a 501c3 nonprofit, so there's no profit motive here. But um, we operate on a shoestring budget, but the donations that we get from the public, there are a lot of people that donate to us, mostly small donations, but it shows enthusiasm and support from the community. And um, so... Yeah, it's it's going really well, but we have I think 18 reviews published right now. We started in 2018, so it's a really slow pace. These reviews take 40 to 100 hours each to produce. Cuz 
you have That's to. That's a lot of work. Yeah, you have to read, and you if you go into the reviews and you expand all the scoring sections, you'll see it's practically like writing a book to review these books. I'm exaggerating, but not by much. And um, you know, it includes evidence reviews and citation, random citation checks, and and it's it's a really it's an in depth process. And I and to me, it's kind of the minimum amount of work that you need to get a really informative, fair assessment of these books. And um, so that's, you know, even though it's doing really well, that's kind of our bottleneck is how fast can we produce these reviews? We have a team of 10 people and we're making like, you know, five reviews a year. So um, it's just a, a really time consuming process. And as far as the future, the main thing I would like to do is just to review more books. I want to expand our library, make it as useful as possible to people. And the more we do that, the more people are going to come to the site, the more impact we're going to have, the more people are going to come, and it's going to kind of snowball. And I want Red Pen Reviews to become a household name. I want it, eventually, I want us to be able to re review books faster maybe even have reviews come out at the time of publication, if we can make that happen, and have it be the default place that people go if they want to evaluate the evidence quality of a book. So that's what I would like Red Pen Reviews to be. And I think, you know, we're on our way there, but it's a, it's a slow process, baby steps. Yeah, no, that's exactly what I was thinking is how cool would it be if you're able to review the book before it's even published? I think that could be helpful too um, for authors as well, because, you know, you've published the book, I've published a book as well, and publishers have a different motivation, right? And so even if you're a scientist or you're somebody that you really want to stay true to the essence of things, publishers are like, people don't want to hear that, you know, like, let's, let's, word it this way or do it this way. And you're just kind of like, huh? You know, like I want to tell them what the real thing is. And so I can see how some of these super popular books, things get kind of written or turned around in a way that's more palatable for the public and what people want to hear whether, versus what's actually evidence-based. So yeah, absolutely. Um, how, do how do you pick what book you're going to review? How do you select? Yeah. So we're going for maximum impact. We want our reviews to help as many people as possible. And so our main criterion is just that the book is really popular. Yeah. And like the bestseller list, yes, things that are trending, yes. Yeah. Um, and we do have some other criteria. So, you know, I'm the reviewers decide which books they want to review. I'm not the one who decides. Um, I can provide. I'm the director, by the way. I can provide guidance if that's helpful. But um, by and large, reviewers decide what they want to review, and. So there can be other considerations, like what book is interesting to them personally. Um, another thing is sometimes an author will be someone who's particularly influential. And so we think it's helpful to have a review by that author, even if it's a little bit less popular of a book. Um, so there can be other considerations, but the main one is just raw impact. How many people are reading this book? Well, I'm really glad you're doing it. I think it's very admirable and commendable. That's a lot of work involved. So yeah, kudos to y'all for doing that. And I hope it really does take off and help a lot of people. Thank you. Well, I want to wrap up. So one of the questions I love to ask everybody is, what do you wish more people knew? Yeah, you know, so in writing my book and getting feedback on it, 
One of the things that I was kind of surprised by that I hear a lot is people feel really relieved in reading it that, you know, they have this idea. A lot of people just kind of in, um, have this assumption or this intuition that their eating behavior is all under their conscious control. And so when they do something that is not consistent with their goals, then that's like a personal failure. Like, why did I choose to do this bad thing? I am bad. And I think just that idea that we have all of these non-conscious brain systems that are not under our conscious control and that we're just kind of, you know, like a tree swaying in the wind a lot of the time. Um, I think that concept is really helpful for a lot of people just in terms of framing and in terms of letting go of some of the guilt that they may have around some of their eating behaviors. So yeah, I would say I that's a that. good thing for people to know. Yeah, absolutely. For real. That Thank you so much for that. Well, I would love for you to share with us how listeners can connect with you, where they can find your book, where can they find the Red Pen Reviews so that they can learn more about all of those books and read your book as well. Yeah, so redpenreviews.org is our website. So go and check that out. And I'm most active on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at SGNA. GNA is G-U-Y-E-N-E-T. I also have a website, stephanguiennet.com, that has a number of articles. I haven't written on it in a while, just kind of don't have time since I had a kid. But uh, I there are a lot of articles that are there that I wrote previously that might be of interest to some people. Awesome. Okay, well, I want to wrap up with the last question. And it's probably a summary of lots of things you've already said before. But if you can leave us with your top three tips that people that want to reduce their overeating, what should they do? Yeah, so I would say, first of all, to the extent that's possible, replace highly processed calorie-dense foods with minimally processed lower-calorie-density foods. Number two, um, control your food environment. So reduce exposure to food cues throughout the day. And number three, get regular physical activity to the extent that you can. I love it. Simple, doable, easy concepts that people can integrate. Stefan, thank you so much for your generosity of time today and your generosity of time all the time now, especially knowing that you have a child and dedicating this much time to the Red Pen Reviews and everything that you do. We appreciate you so much and I hope that you have a fantastic day. Okay, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Hey, veggie lover. I hope that you loved today's episode. Will you take a second and do me a huge favor? Please subscribe to my podcast so that you never miss an episode. You're the reason I'm here and I want to share it all with you. Thank you for listening and have a plantastic day.